0: Welcome to the Media Cat Magazine podcast. Thank you for tuning in for the next in our series, Rebel With A Cause, with me, Opal Turnip. For this series, we are talking about the relationship between creativity and strategy, or in my other words, art, science and logic. It's my pet theory that strategy and planning can be a creative secret weapon and that we overly separate the disciplines in our industry. Today, we're talking to the lovely Kenyatta Nelson, previously Chief Brand Officer at n Brand Group and the non-exec director at the British Retail Consortium. Welcome to the podcast, Kenyatta. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I feel very fortunate and blessed and uh, and privileged. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure why I'm special enough, but I'm going to do my best to sound intelligent and charming and all the other good stuff you want podcast guests to sound like.
0: Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous how humble you are. I just cannot possibly cope. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to a little yeah, yeah, my pleasure. me on a Friday afternoon. Um, but I'm so excited. So let's, let's just get straight into it. Sure, sure. So let's start with just learning more about you. Sure. Can you tell us a bit about your journey yes. and how you've got to where you are now?
1: Sure. So you can probably tell from my funny accent. I'm from the U.S., I grew up in the States. I grew up in a place called uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, which is the southeastern part of the US. It's probably best known for um, a few things, Uh, Michael Jordan being one of them. He went to school there. And uh, also, it's a place that's very genteel. That's the word I would use to describe it. Uh, It's the kind of place where um, everyone speaks to you. Everyone is in your business, but in the best way. Um, Everyone's incredibly friendly. Uh, they want to feed you like food is love. Um, all the stereotypes, uh, about the South and the Southern part of the U S are definitely there. There's an air of conservatism for sure. Um, but what is great about the South in the, in that part of the country is the people. Um, and I think my fascination with kind of sort of humans and the way humans engage and interact and what drives their behavior started because I grew up in a place where everyone was more interested in being interested in people than they were in being interesting, if that makes sense. Um, and so um, I grew up there, once university in Florida, a school called Florida A&M University. Florida A&M is a historically black college. It was what's called a land grant university. One of may- many after the Civil War, land was given um, to institutions to set up universities of higher learning or places of higher learning for, um, for black kids who at the time couldn't go to other schools because that was before desegregation. Right. Um, but those schools still are alive and well today. I went there for undergrad and my MBA, and it was the first time in my, my life really, where I was in a place where I kind of sort of looked around and everyone I saw looked like me. Um, you know, it's tough to kind of sort of describe this. But when you exist in a place in space where you represent like 12, 13% of the population, most of the time through your life, you walk through life and don't really see anyone who looks like you. And so and that's a really, if you've never experienced that phen- phenomenon, I would encourage you to do it. Go to a foreign country like you know Japan, Africa, and see what it's like to walk around and not see yourself. Um, and so I went to that school mainly because they had a great business school and two, because I wanted to see what that was like. Um, it was, it was incredible and formative, uh, for me, um, and absolutely loved it. I was there for four years undergrad, two years grad school, graduated, started working for a small business called Procter and Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, as a brand manager, I studied marketing and, um. And that's begun my career in the context of marketing, creative thinkings, strategy, and brand building. And I've been on that journey ever since, Uh, 16 years with Procter & Gamble. I moved to Switzerland, uh, Geneva, in fact, in 2010. Uh, We'll talk about that a bit later, I guess. And then haven't been back to the States to live uh, since, since then. So I've been here for 12, 13 years almost. Uh, five or so in Geneva, spent in, since 2015 in the UK, where I've worked with uh, with various companies and the same guys. Um, so it's been a hell of a journey. I've I've loved it, um, and it's shaped me in ways that I'm still learning. To be honest, with
0: yeah, I'm interested. So you so you went straight from doing your undergraduate de- degree and into an MBA. Intense,
1: mm. correct? Yes, yeah. You know, you know why I did it. So so. Um, not maybe as as intellectually um, or psychologically uh, interesting as you might think. Mainly, I did, did it because I knew if I left undergraduate school, got a job, started making money, there was no way I was going back to being a poor college student again. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be broke, I might as well continue to trend and then do two more years and get the MBA. I was fortunate because I, I, I was a pretty good student in high school. I got a full ride. And so my undergrad and grad school was paid for. I got an academic scholarship. Amazing. So it was a great decision. Really, really fantastic for me. I did lots of kind of sort of co-ops and internships during that time period. worked in banking for a time. Uh worked in media. Uh, I was a business called CNN in the US, a broadcasting company. I sold pharmaceuticals. I did everything, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and just to figure out what it was I wanted to do before I went to Procter & Gamble.
0: No, it. I I find it fascinating because it's it's it seems to me to be a bit of a theme that I've had that I've I honestly have not intentionally like cast for, but with guests that I've had on, so many people have this one really intense drive and motivation, mm-hmm. and two, try everything, and that's that's part of their kind of superpower in yes. my opinion yeah. is yeah. people who. Want to learn and are curious, yes. so just do all of the things.
1: Yes, yes, all of the things, all the things. Um, so I, I, I didn't mention this, but I am, I would classify myself. Um, if someone were to say, you know, who are you? What are you? Which is a weird question to ask, but, but in that context, I would say, look, you know, I'm probably more anthropologist than I am marketeer. So because of my my formative years and the way i was raised and where i grew up i have a deep intense and very genuine love of people i love to meet people i think in fact no time spent with a human is wasted i genuinely believe this and and because of that you know i've always been interested in how people think uh what drives their behavior why we do the things that we do um You know, my father used to say, uh, God will teach you the same lesson over and over again until the day you learn it. And so I always thought, well, why is it so difficult for us to learn stuff? Why is it, why do we have to go through, (laughs) you know, the pain of something over and over and over again? And so I've always been fascinated with, and and I'm hopelessly curious to your point about all things. Um, I'm I'm the kind of person who probably knows lots a, a little bit about mm. lots of stuff because because um, I, I like to get exposed to things. And I find there are very few things in this life that I don't find interesting, genuinely. Um, and I think that that curiosity has served me well in, uh, in my life and also in my career as a marketing professional be- because marketing in my mind is fundamentally about taking a proposition product service um, and communicating that to customers in a way that drives a different kind of behavior, and I don't think you can do that effectively if you're not really, really interested in the kinds of things that drive human behavior. Um, and so, if, you know, if I've done any good in my career, it's been in part because of that.
0: That's beautiful, honestly. Uh, firstly, it's just
1: no, thank you. you right
0: just a stunning way of looking at the world, and I think we should all probably look at it a little bit more like that. Um, but it's fascinating because you and I actually started talking because um, of some stories of success. So, yes. I would I would love to know before before we delve into that a little bit deeper, what what is success for you? Yeah. How would you define success?
1: Yeah, this is a this is an interesting it's question. A great question. So, look, you know, I think success has to be defined inherently and internally. A lot of people, a lot of people, would debate this point and say, look. You know, um, in in the physical world or in the commercial capitalist society, the metrics and measures of success are defined for you. You know, there are scores that are kept in terms of, you know, business turnover or profitability or bank accounts, um, you know, what you, what you can procure and gain in this world. And I don't, for a second, suggested those, those things are not true or even kind of uh, undervalue or underplay the reality of that. But at the end of the day, uh, only, o- only an individual, you, me, your listeners can define what success looks like and feels like for those people. No one else can do it for you. If you allow other people to define success for you, w- one of the main challenges with that is the goalposts will always move, right? Uh, depending on who you're speaking to that day, depending on uh, a different person's perspective, the measures and metrics of success will shift, and likely it will mean you'll never achieve them. So, I think for me, success has to be inherent; it has to be uh, owned by by the by the person who is seeking to define it for themselves. So, f- for me, you know what success looks like is it's not monolithic. It's, you know, I, I can think about it in the context of my personal life, my personal relationships, which for me is about um, creating and cultivating relationships that are high value um, and make me and the people that I'm in relationships with feel better about ourselves, yeah? And about the time that we spend with one another, very simply stated, right? In my professional life, it's really rooted in fulfillment. It's really rooted in, am I doing work that fulfills me and leaves me um, feeling fulfilled? And that can come in lots of different ways. Am I being challenged? Am I learning? Am am I doing things that I feel like are value additive? And I I haven't always had that, to be fair. I've worked in businesses where I've enjoyed it and I've had a good time, but I've taken a step back and thought about, is this really fulfilling me in, in ways that I Envision or imagine. The answer was no. And I think that's the other reason why defining it for yourself is important because then you can start to ask yourself the question, um, are the ways I'm spending my time and the people that I'm spending my time with, are they aligned and congruent with the way that I've defined success in my personal and or professional life? You need a litmus, I think. And you need to be able to take a step back and calibrate. Mm-hmm. Always ask yourself: Is the trajectory I'm on at the moment aligned with how I've defined success for myself? And if not, um, do I need to take a step back and make a different choice? Um, you know, so I, you know, look, well, people go through periods where we kind of sort of float through life, and life kind of sort of happens to us but I'm a big believer in living life on purpose say. and being intentional. But that, 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 I believe, has a prerequisite mm-hmm. to be intentional and to live a life of purpose and to live life on purpose, rather than kind of sort of living life in this place and space of, I didn't mean for that to happen, or I didn't mean to do that. Um, it requires an acknowledgement and an understanding of what you want and, and how you define success for yourself. So I think it's an important question to ask and to answer, but I think we have to answer that question, uh, and we have to be willing and open to have that conversation multiple times in places and spaces in our life because it might change, and that's fine.
0: Absolutely, it's because it is. It is so easy to get caught up in the intensity of life, and you, as you say, kind of get get stuck doing things kind of by accident because something came up. You went with it. And you, you end up not necessarily in a place that you would have chosen had you stepped back and thought about it. And it was, it's, it's, mm. um, in a previous episode, I was st- speaking to Ollie Scott of Unknown, a, a talent company. Mm. And he was, he was kind of recommending that before people move jobs, they, you know, for 30 days, sit down at the end of the day and write down one thing that you didn't like about the day, essentially, one thing that fulfilled you. Mm. And, and, mm. I can't remember what the third thing is. Sorry, Ollie, but it it was such um such a simple, practical way of taking that metaphorical step back.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And I think that's such a key thing for us to do as individuals, as 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 people, but also as professionals. Yes, yes. Over over a period of time, especially in a world that is changing at like
1: nuts, I'm rate of nuts.
0: I can't even. There's no word yeah, for it. We.
1: This, what's great about that. That advice um, was, I think, interesting about that advice. A- as simple a- as it is, it's actually pretty profound. The The unfortunate thing, however, and it's probably the reason why Ali mentioned it, is so many people don't do it. Was really, as-, as a manager and a business leader, um, one-, one of the things that I spend a lot of time on is the people in my organizations. Um, and a lot of that time is spent on assessing, evaluating, cultivating talent, and as part of that work, um, it, most businesses will have this. There will be some sort of um, evaluation, you know, whether it's semi-annually or annually. There is a process, formal or informal, where line managers, senior leadership, sit with the balance of the organization. Sometimes it's three hundred and sixty. Sometimes it's manager uh, to, to, to colleague and coworker. And there's a conversation that says what's working, what's not working. What do you want to do over the course of the next six, eight, 12 months? How can I help? There's a pl- often a plan, develop a personal and professional development plan. And, and there's, there is to our earlier point, there is intention around building, cultivating, and growing the talent and the capacity in the organization. Because it's viewed as commercially and strategically important to do so. Most people, however, don't take that into their personal lives at all. Right? So I have a friend of mine, uh, he and his wife, once every couple months, sit down and talk about how their relationship is going. Is going. They intentionally carve out time. That's beautiful. Just to say, say, you know, and it's not super formal. There's no kind of sort of no one rocks up with the list of all the shit you did wrong. You know what I mean? It's not—it's <laughs> not that kind of conversation. But he—he he was telling me some of the questions they ask each other, which is, you know, what did I do since the last time we had this conversation that really pissed you off? Yeah, what 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 did I do since the last time we had this conversation that made you fall in love with me again? Um, if there one if there's one thing that you know, I could do differently or better, what would it be? And it is genuinely a conversation that is that is rooted in and grounded in their desire to cultivate the relationship, the thing. It's two people talking about the thing versus the thing. It's not mm. two people versus each other. We place the relationship in the center of the table. We talk about that and we talk about all the ways we can together build it and grow it. Um, And I certainly, in my life, have not sought out or kind of sort of created the space to have that kind of intention around my personal life, my professional life, outside of kind of where where I've almost been told to do so. But to Ali's point, if you carve out the time and have really, uh, um, really honest and open and intentional conversations with yourself, with your partner or your friends or whoever it is. I, th- I think the outcome can only be good. It can only be good. um But it doesn't happen enough. I agree 100%. It's,
0: it's, interesting how the example you give is is, is about a couple about a, a, a romantic relationship because i i often think that we have these you know those stories of success we have these rose tinted fairy tale examples of how success happens mm. and that that stands you know for all types of relationships yes. including Professional ones, including romantic ones, absolutely. And realistically, over a long period of time, regardless of what kind of relationship you have, there has to be a point where you intentionally do it with purpose, yes. as you say. Yes. And it's it's fascinating, isn't it? That 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 story we tell ourselves about if thing if something something's meant to be, it will happen. Um, or one of those ridiculous things, yes, yes, and it's. And it's really, truly about intention yes. and and setting space and purpose and set your mind to something. Well,
1: look, you know, I think I think um, you know, it's incredible how lucky you become when you start working towards something. Mm. You know, those the, the, you know, my my grandfather was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I heard all the time, um, "God helps those who help themselves," and I'm not particularly, you know, religious but i think the lesson in that is move speak act with intention and you will be surprised what happens right and i'm not one for sure to say look luck doesn't occur absolutely it does you know um but oftentimes those things happen because people have placed themselves in the right situations um and 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 i think there is something to be said for for Um, being intentional in the way that you approach every element of your life. I once heard someone say to me, to your point on relationships, there are no bad relationships, there are only badly managed ones. Wow! I think that's really interesting. And I I think as I've gotten older and matured in my professional and personal lives, I think that statement has held true more often than not. Uh, When I look at relationships, in my personal or professional life that have felt broken or not worked, uh, often it's because the two individuals involved haven't set an intention to mend it or to improve it. And because that's been the case, it's broken down. Um, And it's not because it's broken down because that that was always going to be the case. It happened because um, the two or three or however many people involved didn't set an intention to move that relationship to a di- different trajectory or place in space. So yeah, I, I think um, there's there's something to be said about being very clear about what it is that you want or we want, and then putting ourselves as, as as much as we can in positions where 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 good things can happen for us. I know I know that's been been true of my my life and career for sure.
0: And I think I I really truly think that. That is so much of it. It's it's try, try, yes, try stuff, absolutely. and it goes back to that curiosity. It's it's like okay, try something. It didn't work. You could class that as a failure. You didn't end up wanting to be a quantum physicist, but now you know something really interesting, and you have a different point of view on the world, and that is valuable to yes. you and to yes. all of the things that you will do with the rest of yes. rest of your life. Yes, in my opinion,
1: mm, absolutely. I I think really successful people have a very different relationship with failure. I think they view failure simply as an outcome and that outcome can be learned from. So if if I am very clear on what I'm trying to achieve, I know the what, but I'm not clear on the how. The how is effectively a series of attempts that conclude with a success or a failure uh, in the context of get, getting to what I want to achieve. If it succeeds, I found a way to do it. If it does not, I found a way not to do it. And I learned from that attempt and try a different approach. Um, and I think really successful people, their relationship with failure is not an emotional one. They don't, they don't get emotionally attached to the outcome. They're emotionally attached to what they're trying to achieve, right? And that's what they're emotionally attached to. And so, whether or not what I did in that moment moved me closer, or further away is only a data point. If it moved me closer, do more of that. If it moved me further away, do less of that. you know and, and it's, it's if and some people get caught up in the emotional attachment to the perceived failure in the moment and then stop trying. Mm.
0: which is really the worst thing you can do in absolutely. any situation, yeah, I guess it's. It's, it's fascinating actually because it really it really ties in to you know those those stories of of incredible success and you know failure that that we actually start talking about. My one of my favorite recent ones is David Ogilvy, who, just in case listeners don't know, didn't actually work in advertising until he was thirty eight. Randomly decided out of nowhere that you know that was going to be his career. No one in the U.S. hired him. But an agency in London did and he became the most famous copywriter in the world um, and so you know to to your point, he was an outlier and yes, I have just reread Malcolm Gladwell's outliers because it's a great book and if you haven't read it anyone do read it because it's fascinating. but this podcast is often focused on on the kind of the outliers the the folk who have a less than traditional career, a less than traditional skill set, a less than traditional kind of background so I obviously, um, all about that um, but I I'm interested how do you feel you know you've got you've got quite a clear and purposeful mindset as 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 far right. as I can tell chief brand officer big title right. I imagine you have managed over the years quite large teams I'm interested how do you bring that kind of point of view and that clarity and purposeness uh, purposefulness um and intent to managing others and and to an extent, I guess, managing other people's kind of careers and their purpose, yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. I, I think there's a few things um oh. that that I've found to be important and also worthwhile in that endeavor. um the f- The first is getting clear on what we're trying to achieve individually and collectively, right? I, I think all teams, businesses, all groups of individuals who come together for a common purpose. Um, there is a need to understand what we're trying to achieve and how we will know whether or not we've achieved it. And lots of businesses approach this in very different ways. But I think the re- the reality is, um, I-, I think that's critically important in managing teams and in managing businesses, being very, very kind of sort of razor focused and clear on How do we define what winning looks like? Um, and what are the parameters of that success? And it might be time. It might be some, something different. It it might be a a very specific goal we set around customer acquisition or around revenue, around profitability, whatever it is. But I I think getting people aligned around a very clear objective becomes in essence, a force multiplier because then everyone starts to row in the same direction you can get a team of individuals who are superstars, but if they're not aligned to a singular purpose, they'll be beaten by a team of relatively mediocre people who are all roaming in the same direction. Um, I, I genuinely believe that. And I've seen that. I played sports when I was a younger um, man. And um, and I've seen that in my, my athletic, kind of my younger athletic career. And also as, as I, I watch sports, I've seen super teams come together and be u- utterly destroyed by teams that had no business beating them. The difference was alignment and congruence. Um, and, and so I think that's really, really important. That's kind of sort of number one. I, I think the the other one is, you know, I think to be genuinely interested in the people you're managing is critically important. I think you can be a manager That doesn't necessarily make you a leader. I genuinely believe leaders are chosen. Managers are selected. right? Managers are picked by the business. You can be promoted. You can get put in a position where you are managing people and their careers and and their flight paths in the context of their work, their work plans, their delivery plans. But that doesn't mean they see you as a leader. Uh, That's a very different thing because I believe leadership is servitude. And in that context, really great leaders not, not only set vision and direction, they also enable and empower people and remove barriers. And, and I've always kind of sort of viewed my job as a person who does fundamentally two things. One, s- sets clear intention and purpose and defines what that is. And then two, removes barriers and enables people and let the really smart people get out of the way. I think with Steve Jobs, who once said, um. We don't hire smart people so we can tell them what to do we hire smart people so they can tell us what to do right and you know i think what's really tough is in lots of businesses senior leadership get promoted because they're really good at doing a job right and then unfortunately what you sometimes find is they're really good at doing x but that doesn't make them great managers and leaders right and uh, different skill set. Completely different skill set, and I, and I think um, really great leaders recognize w- when it's time to t- turn a different switch on, and and to cultivate a very different skill set, so that you can um, help the organization move um, in a way that is aligned to purpose, um, and help the people in the organization do, do the work they've been tasked with doing by giving them the tools, physical or otherwise, to do so, and removing the barriers, physical or otherwise, that uh, inhibit them from moving in that direction. And then get out of the way. Um, and so for me, that, those, those two things I think are really, really important.
0: That's it, There's so many things, I have so many thoughts. Um... Is it it one of the things that strikes me about what you said is is the first things first, just decide decide where you want to go, what what align on on what the purpose, what our goal is, and to me that's what strategy is,
1: Agreed. Absolutely. to a
0: degree what brand is because yes. it's it's you going as an organisation from an individual level with your team, of course, but also from an organisational level going, we are going here, everyone on board. Yes. And that's why I think brand is as important internally as it is externally. Because yes. if you don't have that rowing in the same direction, then yes, yes, it's yes. just foolish. Surely, yeah.
1: Um, but I, I absolutely agree.
0: Brand, brand is such a big word, and it's so kind of loaded in a in a mm-hmm. weird way because everyone talks about brand. Like Joe X from the street can talk about his favorite.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I don't
0: know sweatshirt brand. What but it's a it's a lovely lovely title chief brand officer um but what what does that mean yeah. to you what has that meant in your experience and and how much of that is mm. is that people management is that leadership kind of role versus you know all of the other creative yes. disciplines?
1: so so i i think if you have the the privilege and pleasure of working in marketing specifically um if you are kind of sort of holding the reins and responsible for the building and cultivation of the brand, you're effectively, um, you're responsible for one of the most powerful intangible assets that the business has in terms of creating value for the business. I, I, I think of my responsibility as one where I am effectively tasked with building the enterprise value of the business through the cultivation of and strength of the brand proposition. And then, okay, so well, what, what is, what is brand really, right? So I I think human beings look at the world and we seek to make meaning of the world, right? And brand is one of the ways that commercial enterprises communicate that meaning, you know, what do I stand for? What am I about this brand? is then imbued with meaning to communicate to the rest of the world, the customer base, potential customer base, this is what this product or service is about. Um, and when it's done well, I think it drives distinction, differentiation, and also has a potential to drive um, s- significant improvements in the value of that proposition as well. But, but that requires care um, and it requires And understanding, in my view, that the way people make meaning of anything is through their experience with that thing, right? So, how do I come to learn that dogs are friendly because of my exposure and experience to dogs? How do I come to learn that I should look both ways when I cross the street because of my exposure and experience with that phenomenon, right? So, lots of people think brand is a marketing thing. But we, if brand is the way consumers or potential consumers make meaning of your brand, actually it is everything. It, it is the end-to-end customer experience because every time that customer or potential customer comes in contact or experiences a part of your proposition, they use that experience to inform how they interpret every time they see that logo, mark, name, right? And so, you know, lots of businesses, I think, unfortunately look at brand as kind of just consumer communication. And it is so much more than that. It's, you know, it's owned by the marketing guys over here. When in fact, it is as connected to product, to price, to um, where your product is seen and distributed. To economic um, success. Th- yeah, the the, the, the service um, and delivery proposition. If, if, if there was a part of your proposition that when a customer is experiencing it, there is an opportunity for that experience to derive or drive meaning. It's part of your brand, and so I feel I feel quite fortunate um, to work and have had experiences working in businesses where that's been my responsibility and job title because I, I view it as critically important—the um, creation of value that then creates. Sorry, creation of meaning and then creates value for the business and the enterprise. Do you
0: do you have a point of view in you know as we've said this nut speed that the the world the uh, the culture the economy is mo- moving at maybe less so the economy right now but um, <laughs> the world is moving at right now. Do you do you do you think the importance of brand has changed in any way?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting. I, I think what I do think has changed quite significantly, in fact, in the last decade or so. Some might even argue even even longer than that. Um, in the Western world, there's been a departure, a consumer abandonment, a departure, um, or I guess a move away from placing trust in institution, right? Whether that is government or religion or otherwise, I think what you're what you have seen and continue to see is Consumers placing far less trust in academic, scholastic, um, government, religious institution. And then whether whether this is on purpose or not, I'm not sure, but for sure there is a shift away from those things and towards brands. What's fortunately or unfortunately come with that is an expectation that brands fill some of that gap and that void, right? some brands uh, have stepped into that. Brands like Patagonia, for example, uh, have stepped into that. But, but, but I think that is because they've always been very, very clear about who they are and why they exist in the context of the se- sector they exist in. Uh, so I think whether or not brands have asked for this would become inconsequential. The customers are now kind of sort of expecting it. And so this, this idea that a brand needs to do more than just sell me things or convince me that their product or service is worth my attention, time, and ultimately my money, um, I think it's something we are in the middle of and going, going to have to live with for the foreseeable future. Um, if you are responsible for a brand and, and your core reason for getting out of bed every morning is just to flog stuff, you know, I, I think you're in, a, you're in a tough position. Because, you know, the vast majority of products and services are commoditized. There are very few things that exist in the world that are truly, genuinely unique. Yeah. For the vast majority of products and services, you can get that stuff anywhere and from lots of different people. And so then the question becomes, how do you use brand to drive differentiation and distinction? One of the ways to do that, um, is to lean into places and spaces where your brand and your product service has more meaning than simply the thing. Um, and it might be connected to the way you make people feel, um, it might be connected to the good you do for the communities you exist in or any number of things, but my sense is this is the, the evolution that's taking place and the consumer abandonment of what you might class as kind of sort of the historic bastions of civility. And the movement from those things into an expectation that brands now deliver that is something that I think all of us in this profession have to think really deeply and intentionally about, you know, a brand's role, um, above and beyond the product or service that it sells. I think defining that particularly now in, in today's world is really, really important. You know, um, I once saw a great slide for your listeners who are familiar with video games. It's an old video game called Mario Brothers, where um, if you eat the flour, you grow in size and you can spit fireballs. And this slide basically, and I've used this in presentation, this slide basically says, look, your, your customer is small Mario. Your product is not the flower. You sell the flour. Um, that's what you make, but what you sell, really, what you're selling is the idea of the badass that Mario becomes when he eats the flower, right? And so, I think it, it becomes now, especially, even more critically important that people are clear, you know, you know, wh- why are you buying this thing? Why? Why are you engaged in this product or service? Brands that get that there is a connectedness between product and service and aspirational life or or meaning uh, do much, much better, particularly when they're selling things that are commoditized. Um, and and you are 100% correct. Um, people are going to look for meaning and in the absence of uh, finding that meaning in the places they're used to finding it, they will look for it elsewhere not to get too far off peace, but I think it's yeah. one of the reasons why you were you seeing so many um, uh, countries, um, you know, following and listening to people that, on the face of it, you would think, why on earth is this person even being given a platform? Mm-hmm. But, but in the absence of you know thought leadership, people will find it. They yeah. will seek it out, and they'll find it um and if you're the only person talking then you're probably going to get a few years right yeah and so from a brand standpoint i think you know practitioners in this space need to take that very very seriously
0: incredibly seriously and i think that 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 point about being an anthropologist more than anything else is even more critical than it has ever been mm-hmm. because of because of that because of the world that that we live in and so for me that that also means, you know, going back to why why you kind of refer to yourself that way is that interest mm. in people, that curiosity. And for me, that means that that brand involves all of the creative disciplines. And, you know, for me I'm I'm fascinated by all of them, which is yes. why I think brand is a great place to work. But what do you feel like some are more important than others in general more mm. so than ever because a lot of what we've spoken about sat it's very logical it's very strategic it's yes. very you know let's be clear about what we're doing and why um but then equally we're talking about helping people find kind of emotional value in and and purpose in life yes so do you how how do you feel about what makes up brand in terms of of disciplines and skills for those that work in it
1: it's a really interesting one um i am I'll be honest with you, Opal, I am loath to say that one discipline or another, it should be prioritized in this context. And the reason why I say that is because I genuinely believe that the end-to-end customer experience is so critically important in shaping the meaning that a brand has the ambition to create for itself. And in lots of businesses, there are people who work in areas of the business where they don't think that, they, that the work they do has an impact. And I think we as marketeers and as strategists do ourselves a disservice when we often big up the parts of the business that we touch and downplay the other parts of the business. When the reality is, um, if I think about Brands that I've been a part of, and where consumers have been exposed to them the most. When you do the simple maths, it's not in the areas that I touch, right? Um, So, if I think about, for example, in a pure play that I work in, you know, we've got a studio that shoots the product that shows up on the website, and it's and it's kind of sort of it churns out like factory. You know, models come in. Product put on model, hundreds of shots a day. Yeah, hundred shots a day, and it's a it's all, it's almost kind of sort of a thankless job because everyone yeah. in the business just assumes this stuff just magically appears on the website, right? Yeah, better. and it, and we spend all the time thinking about big campaigns and you know how much money we're going to spend on Google Shopping and below the line and above the line and the whole bit, right? Um, you know, when you take a step back and you say, okay, how many what website visits? are we getting in a year? And you say, look, you know, you're talking about 70 to 100 million site visits, not all independent, but that's a lot of eyes on that product. The amount of money you would have to spend in a campaign to drop that level of viewership, it it would be Astronomical. astronomical amounts of cash, right? But we spend an inordinate amount of time focusing on campaign delivery months, right? And then in the organization, no one was thinking about the photography in the studio on the fourth floor, even though, even though loads more people were looking at that. And I think that phenomenon happens in lots of businesses. It's easy to spend time looking at sexy stuff, but oftentimes it is the fundamentals. It is how many calls are coming through to the call center and does the script make sense? How many people are calling and saying, um, where is my order? You know, How many people are thinking about how, you know, if I shoot the product in this way or that way, if I include or not include video, how, how you know, what's the impact that that is having, having in the business? And I think it, I'm giving you an example in, in the pure play fashion context, but I think this is true of most businesses, particularly those that are aesthetically driven, where it's very easy for people to think about, you know, the big, big creatively driven campaign stuff and not think about things like packaging or pricing. Um, it, and things that have an, an enormous impact on the way a, a customer views your brand,
0: and it's almost wasteful. I, I don't know how you feel about it. But I I almost feel like it's wasteful to not apply strategy and creativity in all of those places.
1: Yes, as yes, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, you know, we talked about this the last time I was with you guys at the studio. I, I think I've, you know, strategy. I tend to believe strategy has three elements. The first is a clear diagnosis. You can't come up with a strategy if you don't know wh- what problem you're solving for. Mm-hmm. The the second is um, you need some guiding principles, things you will and won't do. And then you need actions that are aligned to those principles and pointed towards um, solving that problem. In my mind, creativity is no different. C- creative endeavors seek new ways to solve old problems. So, because creativity is about, in, in its essence, I believe, problem solution. It is mm. connected inextricably to strategy. It is strategic. It's not people coloring in and painting pretty pictures, right, that's, that's, that's art, right? And art can be incredible and evocative and emotive, uh, but art, in its core, I don't think is designed to solve a problem. Creativity yeah. is different, right? Creativity is is problem solving, and problem solving is strategic.
0: And that's why I think it's such a shame that in 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 so many places, and essentially, and for so many people, essentially, the reason this podcast exists is because I don't see those things as separate either but so mm. much of the agency world so much of the comms business keeps these two things completely separate you can either be the rebel or you can be the cause but you can't be both yes and yes. i I'm, I'm just coming to this very like i'm coming to this realization now as we speak that because i kind of grew up professionally um in in a space that was brand first always more brand than Mm -hmm. than kind of marketing and advertising if you can separate it in that way i that of course i don't of course i don't think they're separate things because brand dictates that it must be everything and it's as much business as it is it is those soft skills or it or those data points it's all of those things and you can't separate them yes and now i've just realized how i how i am who i am So that's
1: well, well I, th- you know, I think i think one, one of the one of the um great disservices um that creatives or people who work in creative endeavors um have done almost kind of sort of to themselves is to talk about creativity as if it's this kind of sort of uh, obscure, elusive giant living in the hillside that only I have access to because I have creative in my title, right? And how dare you, non creative person, question my creativity, right? <laughs> and, and the reality is, creativity does and should be allowed to exist in every element of the business. Um, you know, creativity can live in lots of different guises and creativity can be executed in lots of different ways and appear in lots of different ways and iterations. But that doesn't mean that if I work in finance or customer service or package design or you know whatever else in the business, that I can't be creative in my thinking. Mm. Um, and I think great business leaders allow for that environment to exist. And one of the ways I believe they do it is is through what we talked about earlier in terms of creating a very different relationship with failure. Mm. People I think get much more comfortable being creative, which requires bravery because creativity is new, when they exist in in places and spaces and environments where failure, where the organization has a different relationship with failure. Psychological safety. Learning. Absolutely so if 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 I'm Amazon and I test pricing a thousand times a minute, right? One of them is going to work. That means I failed six thousand nine hundred and ninety nine times, right? But that relationship that that organization has a very different relationship mm-hmm. with failure. Failure is simply trying to optimize and get closer to the outcome the desired outcome. Um when that environment is created that psychological safety, as you put it, is created everyone in the business feels f- free and open and able to be creative in their thinking mm. um and that can come to life in lots of different ways
0: and vice versa in my experience i so obviously i'm biased by my own experience of of being a creative in in kind of a a small slightly less traditional agency at the moment but also you know creatives i i found often don't know what strategy is how it helps them how it gives them that purpose and 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 some people are brilliant at it and just don't know don't know that they're doing it which is fascinating um but it is it is that psychological safety of 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 just not putting yourself in in one specific situation in one box where you you live or die on whether something succeeds or not
1: yes absolutely
0: it's 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 for me it's 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 opening opening that box up and going, Okay, well, some some days you're gonna be over here, some days you're gonna be over here and that might work and yes. that might not work.
1: Yes. But
0: we're all going towards the same place. Yes. And yes. so it doesn't matter who or how or why that gets it to your point about it doesn't matter if the account person, it doesn't matter if the finance person comes up with the great idea. Yes. It doesn't matter if the creative comes up with the strategic insight, like as long as we're all going in the same place, surely that's what matters
1: correct correct and and what what is required in that context is clarity about where we're going
0: mm. Brand.
1: because if everyone's if everyone's aligned to that, then the how the how becomes just a series of iterative steps yeah and and learning um um my father used to say eight plus one equals nine, but so does five plus four. And and in that lesson, I guess what he was trying to say is look, you know, don't ever think that there's only one right way to do something. Mm. You know? Um, because the way you have done it might work, and that's fine, but that doesn't mean it's the only way. Um, and be open to you know, a person or a group or, you know, someone saying to you, you know, look, there's a different way to do this and it might be a more efficient way. It might just be different. That's fine. I think, I think really great managers and leaders do this very, very well, because what happens is, you know, we talked this earlier, you get promoted for doing a job really well Yeah. and then someone, you get promoted and someone steps into your previous role and they do it, they do the job differently than you. And then through your coaching, And through your feedback, your feedback starts to look like the right way to do this is the way that I did it. And one of the things that I was taught very early in my career, and I do this to this day, is whenever I look at something someone has worked on, even if it's a one-pager, whatever it is, if my feedback doesn't fundamentally improve the thing, if it just changes it, then I don't give it. So, 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 you know, if, if I'm like, oh, I would have said this. Okay. But does that improve? Does that, that take us closer to what we're trying to achieve? Mm. The answer is no. All it does is make it sound more like me, then cross it out. Don't even share it. It's not because it's, it's, um, it's not constructive. I haven't added any value. Mm. I've just made it. I've made the person, I've just brought the person closer to my voice
0: and the value to to you of them is their own voice correct and i think exactly. it's so easy for us to forget forget that that like you know as as someone as a manager as someone in a leadership position your role is to help that person get to their right point their goal complete, their purpose the best
1: version of themselves
0: exactly yes. and in the process get the organization to yes. to the best version of itself at the same time and that doesn't necessarily mean it has to look like how you would get there because it's yeah, not yeah. your purpose. It's theirs. Yeah.
1: We're not looking to create clones. We're not the Borg uh, in Star Trek. It, you know, you know, no one, the organization doesn't want or need lots of different versions of me. Exactly. Um, and and frankly, you know, there's lots lots have been done empirically and otherwise to prove that diversity of thought is actually very commercially advantageous.
0: Loads of stuff in HBR loads yes. if you yes. need any proof anyone just yes. have a pop on over to hbr there's tons Absolutely. there's tons and i and i think that part of that and and the reason that i make the podcast to a degree is just to remind us of that fact mm. just to remind us that you know someone someone else's experience doesn't have to look like yours and also maybe that's a good thing it's actually yes. a good the- thing
1: Absolutely. There is no, there is no leadership archetype. It doesn't exist. When people say, what does leadership look like? Um, that, that's a circular question. Uh, well, it looks like you. That's what it looks like. It looks like me. There is, there is no way, um, archetypal way or way to lead or way to look like a leader. Um, as we talked before, leaders are chosen anyway. Mm. Uh, so, the best thing you can do is be authentic. I believe leadership is authentic. And because leadership is authentic, it means it will look different d- depending on who's in the seat. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the best, you're going to be the best version of you that anyone ever has been or could be. Um, I think then you add to that the fact that leadership is broadly non hierarchical. I don't think it has anything to do with hierarchy. Anyone can be chosen to lead, and anyone can be followed, irrespective of where they sit on the organizational hierarchy. And I think leadership is situational; it changes depending on what is what the organization needs. So much, and and so I think I think those are, are the three things that, if you are in a position of leadership or or seek to be in one, to keep in mind, not to pat on yourself after. Someone you've read about, or something you've seen in the organization, you know, take take bits and pieces that you think work well. That's fine, Mm. you know. Borrow, steal, uh, reapply, Uh, but don't ever feel like you need to become um, anything other than a better version of you. Yeah. Um, Just really quickly, Opal, or something at the time. I yeah need to, I need to run
0: I was literally about to wrap up okay. I was literally about to wrap up so I mean a f- final question I'm pretty sure I know the answer I'm gonna I'm gonna sub the word strategy for purpose in this context but yes. I always ask at the end of every episode my theory that creatives need purpose mm. and can make better use of it I, mm. I'm, I'm I'm hearing from your answer that you agree
1: yes yeah I think I think that's true uh, you know um we talked a couple of weeks ago about my my feeling that, uh, creativity or any creative endeavor seeks to challenge convention. And I, and I think, you know, really great creatives, they, they seek to do that. And underneath that desire is they're, they're being driven by something. You know, Mm. I want to create a better version of X. I want to, um. Shoot a photograph in a way that no one has ever done it before. Um, I want to play this character, Othello, making this up, in a way that no one has ever played this person before. That that challenging or desire to challenge convention and come up with a, a new way to solve something that has existed before, I think has to come with purpose. It has to come with an intention, an objective in the mind's eye of the practitioner. And that's what I believe drives them and us to do the things that we do. Um, in the absence of that, you know, we're just kind of sort of having a play and that's fine. That can be helpful in the context of honing skill and craft. Um, but when when rubber hits road, in my mind, in the context of true creative endeavors, there needs to be purpose, there needs to be intention. Mm. Um, Well, it's
0: that first step of strategy you mentioned is defining what the problem is so that you can figure out how to solve it.
1: Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Wonderful. Well, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, um, Kenyatta, it's been an absolute joy.